0: From St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air.
1: Poor but independent folk whose chief amusements consist of punching each other's eyes. Yeah. A quarrelsome lot.
0: Okay. <laughs> You know, it's funny, stereotypes are so weird. They're always drinking and they're always fighting. They're childlike. You know, they're storytellers. Oh, they get a tear in their eye. They're dangerous, you know, they're Fenians and they're gonna blow up the town. He went over there and massacred, like almost half the island. I mean, just mm-hmm. massacred them with his troops. He told his troops that the Irish had tails.
1: I'm Sarah Fenske. The first wave of Irish immigrants arrived in St. Louis at the beginning of the 19th century, and within just a few decades, they'd made a major impact. By 1820, one in seven St. Louis residents was native Irish-born, and the population only grew from there. But the Irish journey has seldom been an easy one. That's true for the Irish in St. Louis as well. And joining us now to share some of their story is Patrick Murphy. He's the author of a handsome new book from Reedy Press. It's called The Irish in St. Louis, From Shanty to Lace Curtain. Patrick Murphy, welcome back. Well, thank
0: you so much for having me, Sarah.
1: So this book, there's so much great history in here. I want to kind of start at the beginning. What initially brought the Irish to St. Louis in such large numbers?
0: They came in the 1820s when it was just a little bit of village because – Um, and and a lot of them were Protestant and they had come from Ireland because there was political oppression. This was before the famine. And they liked St. Louis because it was mostly French and the French didn't like the English either. So, and it was Catholic. So it seemed like a good place to come. And they even called them, they had a name for them, they called them the Irish crowd. And they started businesses and they did really well. And they mixed well with the French and, and the Americans and everything was going well. But then the big wave, Came in the 1840s, mm-hmm. and that was totally different. It was almost exclusively Catholic, which back then was like a threat to real American religion, which wasn't Catholic. And uh, St. Louis had just never seen poverty on the scale of these starving people who were coming by the thousands to St. Louis, come either up through New Orleans or you know across the rivers from from the east, landed on the on the riverfront, and like, what are you going to do with them? And although we romanticize our Irish ancestors, I think if we were to see them, we might be a little bit surprised. They
1: were a bedraggled lot.
0: Bedraggled. I mean, and, and starving. Yeah, they and were arriving. fleeing
1: the Great Potato Famine.
0: Yeah, and most of them, most of them came from the countryside. Many of them came, came from County Kerry, which is why Kerry Patch became the big slum in North North St. Louis. And they weren't really qualified to do much of anything. And in Ireland, they were forbidden to own businesses and forbidden to do much of anything except starve.
1: I mean, this was a very oppressed people. And so when they came over here, as you say, they were very poor. They didn't really have those kind of job skills as the previous wave, which was a more Protestant, more affluent kind of Irish. When these Irish showed up, you said a lot of them settled in Cary Patch. This was a neighborhood that no longer exists.
0: My family—I always heard Cary Patch stories because my family came from Kerry Patch, and my grandfather and, and, and uncles talked about Cary Patch. It was a really rough place. It was owned initially in the 1840s by the Malanfy family, and of course, you know, they were Irish, and they, they let them squat there and build shacks. This and, was
1: some altruism. The Malanfys were not so bad off.
0: No, they—he was—he was like St. Louis's first millionaire, Irish millionaire, certainly. And people kind of squatted there and built shacks, and then they replaced them with uh, other slum dwellings. <laughs> and and it was like a number of neighborhoods all linked together by gangs and crime and poverty. And it was a really awful place, but it had a great feel to it. You know, I mean, at least everybody was... There was a lot of solidarity there.
1: You had a great quote um, in your book here. This comes from an 1878 St. Louis City Guide. It said, Cary Patch residents were a, quote, poor but independent folk whose chief amusements consist of punching each other's eyes. A quarrelsome lot.
0: (laughs) You know, it's funny. Stereotypes are so weird because, because... They're either negative stereotypes, like they're always drinking and they're always fighting. And there's that negative, they're dangerous, you know, they're Fenians and they're going to blow up the town. And then the other one is almost the exact opposite. They're childlike, you know, they're storytellers. Oh, they get a tear in their eye at the, you know, drop of a hat. Uh And so you, and in fact, there were depictions uh, in, in newspapers back then. They depicted them as like monkeys Like with monkey features. Yeah, I mean, you
1: you get into this in this book that there was an argument that the Irish were not white.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: all the racial prejudice that was faced by people today who are considered not white, this was was put on the Irish as well.
0: Well, there was a pseudoscience back then in the 19th century... You know, to some degrees, this kind of thinking even exists today. And there are a lot of parallels between the immigrant stories then and and now. But there was the good scientists of the day, at least some of them, thought there was a scale of whiteness. At the very top, there was the Teutonic and Anglo-Saxon.
1: Basically, you're Brits.
0: Yes, yeah. And white America had already kind of decided that the worst thing you could be in America was a person of color. Mm -hmm. And then there was the in-between and the Irish... They kind of looked white, and they were technically white if you, if you can imagine such a concept,, yeah. but there was like an asterisk they were they were sort of a a subspecies of white people it 's just so weird it 's almost impossible to get your head around now, yeah. but that it, justifies you then for not treating. back back in Ireland, Oliver Cromwell back in the sixteen hundreds he went over there and massacred like almost half the island i mean just mm-hmm. massacred them with his troops he told his troops that the irish had tails
1: and they believed this i mean they they couldn't check and see there's no tails here but
0: oh, well imagine yeah. a group of people believing absurd things yeah. about another people <laughs> I mean, true i mean it's, i'm
1: it's, i'm judging them it's and shocking yet.
0: sir shocking yeah. yeah well
1: so for the irish in st louis this played out in some very violent ways you get in in this book you get into the history of the 1850s yeah. seems like was a really tough time for the irish here there was this big wave that had come over and was still coming over due to the potato famine over there how did that then play out in st louis in, in ways i think that would shock many people today
0: they were blamed for everything they were blamed for the 1849 fire they were blamed for the 1849 cholera epidemic 1849 was a bad year to be irish (laughs) and they had these little neighborhoods on on the near north side and and they were catholic and that was weird i mean it was Papist. It was like uh, another country, another uh, allegiance, and of course they they were poor and not particularly attractive at the time to a lot of people
1: by the standards of the day. Uh, of I want to clarify of, of the yes. day.
0: Yeah, well, I mean we're very attractive now, don't you think? That's yes, right. I would certainly stipulate and, and to that, Kasher Murphy. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and there was this nativist know nothing movement. I mean, we might—it was like the white supremacist right wing movement of the mid nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and it got to the point where they the the no nothings organized uh, militarized attacks on neighbor on, on neighborhoods in the eighteen fifties. They burned down. On, oh, and then they accused them of voter fraud. Okay, then, boy, this all yeah, does sound a little familiar. Fraud. And, and uh, they, they brought cannons in. They set, they set businesses on fire. They set blocks on fire. And, they
1: killed a bunch of people.
0: Yeah. And the Hibernians, which are kind of a nice club today, uh, they started out in St. Louis and other places as actually a militia group to defend Irish neighborhoods. And in 1854, there was a riot that was so bad it extended from the riverfront all the way to where the convention center is now. Wow. And they were fighting from rooftops and in the streets.
1: You know, something that I think also bears noting when we look at that era and what was going on, a lot of us in the journalism industry, we look at Elijah Lovejoy as a hero. This was a guy who was – he was in favor of abolition, which was a great cause to be behind. He was a journalist who was killed for writing things that, that were in favor of abolition, makes him a martyr he was drumming up this anti-Catholic, anti-Irish hatred, doing it from St. Louis and then from Alton.
0: Absolutely. I was really surprised because I thought Elijah Lovejoy, too, was one of these good guys, and he died. He was a martyr. He was for freeing the slaves and and all of that. I mean, how can you argue against that? But he absolutely had this almost paranoid loathing of Catholics and Irish. And he, he would print up in his little newspaper that, well, it wasn't a new. It was an important newspaper. It wasn't a little newspaper. Uh, things horrible things that were going on between the priests and the nuns, and and how there were plots to overthrow America, and there was just this this strain of hatred that ran through. So this is what they're up against. But on the other hand, it was so much better than where they came from, and and I think one of the reasons that. That people kind of admire the Irish story. I mean, the Irish aren't oppressed now. I don't feel oppressed. <laughs> but the stories continue. And in Irish American families, the stories are passed down and they seem very real. And storytelling is I think it's a characteristic, it's a characteristic of a lot of groups, but it's particularly a, a, a characteristic, I think, of Irish American culture. And the stories are so real about no Irish need apply and the riots. And they dragged a cannon in front of the old cathedral to keep the mobs from burning it burning it down.
1: The Irish persevered. And so there's these great stories. But we're able to look back at these stories in the past. Today, yeah. let's face it, you're fully accepted as white.
0: I do not. <laughs> yes, I haven't had any problem with that at all. And, and uh, it, it's... Uh, it's just strange how these same patterns, though, emerge and happen. Like hardly anybody came to America because they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Everybody, no matter what race or what ethnicity, you come to America because you had to. And as I'm writing this, one of the questions I'm asking myself is: one of them is, first of all, what is this Irish thing anyway? What is it? And asking people about that, but also, how do you how do you create a space for yourself in America. How do you become an American? Like my great-grandfather was a funny old guy with an Irish brogue in strange ways and you know, wore funny clothes and his kids, my, my grandfather and his brothers, they were American. They lost their brogue and got a shoe shine and a haircut yeah. and they like passed. And there's been discrimination against Catholics, not so much in St. Louis, but still even in outstate Missouri up through the 1940s and a little bit in some places even today. But it was an easier assimilation than a a lot of groups went through.
1: We're talking today to Patrick Murphy. He's the author of a new book, The Irish in St. Louis, From Shanty to Lace Curtain, uh, traces the Irish history in this area. There is so much good history here. As you say, they had some real advantages in trying to assimilate. Um, One of them, that, that they came in speaking English. Yeah. So the Irish are here. Um, they were in Kerry Patch. This is where your ancestors were in North City. Mm-hmm. There were a couple other neighborhoods that you talk about here. Dogtown and then a different patch, Patch in South City.
0: I did not know that until I started researching. And by the way, I found what I did a lot of research this. And I believe that I really know why it's called Dogtown.
1: And I'm very curious. And when, I'm not going to tell, us the tell story. you because oh. you
0: got to read the book. I mean,
1: I did read the book. I was hoping you would tell our listeners. I, no, I, You're not going to tell no, them.
0: Actually, I will. I will. No, I know you read Thank the you. book. Um, it, it was. It, it had nothing to do with dogs. It had nothing to do with the World's Fair. Uh, it was just a name that was given to mining little mining settlements, and in Dogtown they were mining. Rocks and quarries, and they had, and and it was just a name all over America for a little settlement like that. They called it a, a dog town, a dog town. But the other place that you mentioned that was really surprised me was also called the Patch, and it was in Carondelet, and there was there were a lot of big forges down there and heavy industry. They built boats for the for the army during the Civil War and. It was a really dangerous place, too. These places were always blowing up. And I mean, it was Because of the
1: heavy industry, not the interpersonal violence. Right,
0: right. Well, yeah, both probably. But the industry, yeah, the industry were even more dangerous than the bars. So they were coming up from New Orleans, some of them. Before they got to St. Louis, they got to Carondelet, saw the smokestacks. And a lot of them just said, let me out here. And that was called the patch.
1: And they got to work. Today, we still think of Dogtown as an Irish neighborhood, but it's not necessarily Irish in the way that the Hill. I feel like they really cling to that. We're the Italian-American neighborhood. Dogtown seems more like just the fun drinking neighborhood. Today, are the Irish just everywhere?
0: They are. Yeah, they're everywhere. You can't go anywhere without running into one. But um, although when you talk to Irish in Dogtown, they they would say, "No, this is." you know,
1: they still feel that, that sense of they, place. They,
0: they, they do. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, I talked to, uh, Joe Jovanovich who owns, uh, Pat Connolly Tavern, which a is a wonderful Irish bar. Yeah. And, and, and he said, you know, we got a few pictures on the wall, but we don't go out of our way to like advertise ourselves as an Irish place because everybody knows it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I talked to some other historians, uh, John Corbett, who is a an historian of, of Dogtown. And he said, you know, we just don't make a big deal out of it. We don't care whether other people think that we're an Irish neighborhood or not. We just are and we know it. And that's that. And can I buy you a beer?
1: And that works. It I think works. that works for everybody.
0: It's like it's not Danny Boy on the jukebox and shamrocks hanging from the ceiling. It's just like, we're Irish. That's yeah. it.
1: So the Carey Patch, where your family settled yeah. in North City, that's now all gone. Like there's not really hardly any traces of what was this huge neighborhood. What wiped that out?
0: I spent a lot of time walking around up there, down Biddle Street and Milanfee Street, and and the three big churches. They called them the Shamrock Churches: St. Bridget, St. Patrick, and St. Lawrence O'Toole. They're all gone. They're totally leveled. Uh, a, an occasional tenement house. The only building I think that you could even remotely relate to those days which is barely standing, is the Melanfi Immigrant Home. And that's been in the news lately because it's just falling down in increments. You read the South Wall fell down and then a few weeks later, the East Wall fell down. So I'm not optimistic about that being around, but it's just there's no there's no trace of it. And then other people moved in later. It's almost as if that part of town, somewhere the city decided long ago that this is just going to be the poor part of town. Yeah. And one group of poor people move out and another group of poor people move in who don't really particularly care about the heritage of the people who came before them.
1: They're just trying to survive.
0: Just trying to survive. Yeah. yeah. And so there's very there's very little left there now.
1: So there's fewer landmarks when we think about uh, the original Irish in St. Louis, but they still have this huge legacy. I mean, this town would not be what it is if oh, yeah. not for the Irish. And it was shocking to learn all the names that are traced back to some Irishman who showed up here and, and kind of made things happen. What do you see as the real legacy of the Irish in St. Louis?
0: Oh, that's a really good. That's a good question. Um, I think the Irish have lent a certain flavor to the city. Um, the music, of course, everybody loves Irish music,
1: and that continues to be made here today, as, and, and as you write in your book,
0: bigger and bigger all, all of the time. I I, th- I think that. The Irish, probably because of their past, they developed a sense of humor about the oppression that they went through and and sort of a self-deprecating sense of humor as well. There are all these great lines in the book, too, about one of my favorite is one, one writer. She wrote, being Irish is like having a job you never applied for. Yeah. That's one of my favorites.
1: I mean, as I said, starting this conversation, it is a hard lot. Like, you know, the Irish just had centuries of oppression. And yet you guys are doing great today.
0: Everybody, everybody loves a survivor. And it's interesting because the other big ethnic group for a long time in the 19th century were the Germans. And my mother's side of the family is German and my father was Irish. And it was like two families from a different planet. I mean, it's, they didn't dislike each other. They didn't even know how to talk to each other. It was, And I grew up thinking that I had two kinds of blood almost. And my mother would say, it's a good thing you've got German blood in you because otherwise you'd be just like your father's side of the family. <laughs> and my dad, my dad would say, you know, off to the side, he'd say, you know, it's a good thing you're Irish because otherwise you'd be as dull as your mother's side of the family:
1: You know what, Patrick, That is the perfect note to end on because the Irish, you know they' good times, bad times. Always exciting times for the Irish. Oh, yeah,
0: never a dull moment.
1: <laughs> Patrick Murphy, thank you so much thank for joining you, us. Sarah. Patrick's new book from Reedy Press is The Irish in St. Louis, from Shanty to Lace Curtain. He has a reading and signing at the Pat Connolly Tavern. That's this Saturday afternoon. We have details on our website, stlonair.show
0: This episode was produced by Sarah Fensky with audio engineering by Alex Hoyer. It was mixed and edited by Aaron Dor, with production assistance by Lily Halloran.
1: St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis.